Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. He kōna e purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Welcome to Country Life. I'm Duncan Smith. Great to have your company. Call Sally Murphy TNA. Today we journey into the heart of the North Island on the trail of the Fio. Our market gardener opens his paddock so people can dig up their own Christmas spuds. And we meet a farmer who left the milking shed for the tool shed, moving from dairy cows to hens. He's launching Kiwi-style chicken trailers and helping other farmers improve the health of their soils. But first, to a rat of the week's rural news. And uh, not good news on the Mycoplasma bovis front. No, a second Salwyn farm is infected with the cattle disease, which causes problems like mastitis, pneumonia and arthritis. It's next door to the other infected farm in Canterbury and has been under movement restrictions for several weeks now. In August, New Zealand reached no known cases, but the Ministry for Primary Industries says it's not uncommon to have this sort of thing happen at the tail end of an outbreak, and they're working to keep the disease from spreading. We'll keep our eye on that. And you have the lowdown on some primary produce export figures, Sally. Yes, revenue for food and fibre exports is actually forecast to fall by $3.1 billion in the year to June next year. But the drop's being described as just a blip and they're expected to pick up again next year. An MPI report forecasts revenue from dairy to drop 7%. That's due to softer global dairy prices and a decline in domestic milk production. And red meat exports are forecast to fall by 5% because of weaker demand in key markets like China. Here's the Ministry's Director-General, Ray Smith. We're basically seeing a dip one year in ten. We've had nine years of growth, actual and forecast, and then we expect to kind of arrive back at a rate that is above where we dipped. That whole confluence of events, we've got to ride our way through that. The outlook is positive, but we're in a sort of challenging space. But seafood and arable exports are bucking the trend, with revenue expected to jump 8 and 7% respectively. Now, this wet weather is not great for East Coast arable farmers. It's really not. The soggy ground has put them really behind schedule and only about half of this season's maize crop has been planted. Niwa's latest hotspot report shows parts of Gisborne and Hawke's Bay as well as the far north have much wetter soil this month than what's normal for this time of the year. Federated Farmers Arable Chair David Burkett says normally all of the maize crop would have been planted on the east coast by now. The problem is there's not a lot you can do when the ground's wet. You really just have to wait for it to dry out. But the the challenge they've got is there is a window 
in which you can plant in, and that window pretty much closes. You know, Mid-December mid is probably as late as you would normally go for planting maize, um, and at the very stretch, Christmas. So, But as you go later, you obviously also lose yield of that crop. Even if they can get some on the ground in the next uh, week or 10 days, um, there's probably a significant yield decrease as well. Mr Burkett says it's devastating for the growers as it's too late to plant any other arable crops. But things are more optimistic among apple growers in Hawke's Bay. They are. We caught up with NZ Apples and Pears Chief Executive Karen Morrish. Says they hope the coming season will be better than first predicted after Cyclone Gabriel. She says in the orchards that weren't badly affected by the cyclone, flowering is really strong and the spring crop looks fantastic. But she says growers are hesitant because they know the trees still need to get through the harvest. She also told us growers need regulations to ease and they need long-term support so they can expand and invest with confidence. Now, you've reported this week that wet weather over the ditch is good for us, though. How come? Well, the hope is that Australian farmers will no longer need to keep offloading their stock. They've been doing this for months in expectation of an El Nino drought, and that severely depressed returns for our sheep farmers. We put a call in to our ABC colleague in Victoria, Angus Verley. He told us farmers have realised they've got enough feed and they're not facing a drought, and they can actually buy in stock. Just in the past few weeks at all of our selling centres really, whether it's lamb, mutton, cattle, all of those prices have jumped right up and that's off the back of essentially widespread rain. So uh, people have got confidence now, they've got feed, or they will have feed, they've got confidence to um, buy livestock and it's, yeah, we've seen some really, really decent rises at the sale yards. And finally, you went along to a huge rural fundraiser this week, Sally. How much did they raise? Yes, I went along to the Big Feed Rural Telethon. They raised more than 639,000 mints and milk meals for food banks around the country. Great. It was run by farmer-led charities Meet the Need and Feed Out and live-streamed from Lincoln University's campus. There was a range of challenges to get the money and donations rolling in. One farmer even hitchhiked from Auckland to Christchurch throughout the day and farmers even donated whole animals. Meet the Need founder and Federated Farmers President Wayne Langford says he's blown away by the generosity. We, we were really worried this year because it's, it's quite tough on farm at the moment. A number of farm, farmers really struggling with prices and not only uh, input costs but also prices they're receiving. So we didn't know what was going to come so to see them roll through like they did has been fantastic and uh, couldn't thank them enough. That was Wayne Langford rounding up the Rural News Wrap this week. This is Country Life on RNZ National 101 FM. The lead-up to Christmas is usually a busy time for Cam and Melissa Booker, who run a large market garden in North Canterbury. Cam was checking on some veggie crops when Cosmo Kentish Barnes popped in to find out how things are going. We're down in our pea patch in the, our back paddock here in uh, Sefton. And uh, between the peas there's quite a lot of... Pineapple weed. Yeah, and it's got a uh, lovely pineapple fragrance on it. Unfortunately, it doesn't taste quite so like pineapple. <laughs> Can you just leave it, or do you need to do a bit of weeding here? Oh, no, we'll probably leave it. Um, keep, helps keep the dust down and any rain splash. That if it rains like it did yesterday, stops all the peas getting covered in uh, dirt. We had quite a rainstorm yesterday. Yeah, we did. Um, 
we were quite lucky and uh, didn't get any hail unlike some areas and only end up with about 15 mils of rain which was probably about perfect but uh, what we need now is a bit of heat to bring all these peas on in time for Christmas Eve. Yes, yes. Most plants have got little white flowers on them. Yeah, those ones may, don't think we'll probably quite make it for Christmas, but all the nice flat peas that look like snow peas at the moment um, should fill out just nicely for a pick-your-own on Christmas Eve. Yes. And, yeah, we also have dig-your-own um, potatoes, all in the same paddock. Do you provide buckets and spades? How does it work? No, that's, uh, yeah, the customers all bring their own forks and buckets to pick theirs into. And uh, a lot of families now, it's their Christmas Eve tradition to come out here and pick peas and dig their Christmas potatoes. Do you do that rain or shine? We do that rain or shine, but we prefer to have shine rather than rain. (laughs) Now we're walking down between the peas and it's a really good crop. What's this variety called? So this is a very old variety called Massey and it's been around uh, a very long time and that's pretty much a standard early pea. I'm just leaning down and having a feel. Oh, these feel nice and plump. Yeah, these are our early varieties, so these are ones that we'll pick uh, this week. So what is the later pea variety that you've got here? Okay, yeah, that one there is called Green Feast. It spreads our risk a bit, so, you know, some years they can be early, some years they can be late, so by putting a couple of different maturities we sort of hopefully cover our bases, but it doesn't always work. It's working this year. It looks like it is, but yeah, as I says, we do need some more heat to bring that one on, that which is our main one for the pick your own on Christmas Eve. Since you've been here, have you noticed that the climate has become more volatile? It does seem to be, but um, in saying that, we've always had hot periods, we've had cold periods, we've had wet periods. All I say is it's constantly changing, and I think it always has. Mm. <laughs> You were hit pretty bad by the strong winds in October. Have you recovered from from that yet? We lost uh, two of the roofs off our greenhouses and we'd already just lost one roof a month or so before in a southerly blast. So we've now lost three of our six roofs in our greenhouses. Um, The tomatoes on one side of a greenhouse were relatively small plants at the time, took a bit of hammering and uh, we're sort of starting to see the effect of that now. They're not looking quite as good as the ones on the other side. (laughs) Are you covered by insurance for things like greenhouses? Unfortunately, no, we're not, as uh, the excess uh, for those sort of things is ridiculously high. So we just have to brave the brunt of that. Here are the spuds. So the spuds this year, we've got Desiree, the red one, and then we'll have some uh, Anushka, which is a relatively new yellow-fleshed potato, which is very nice as a small new one and uh, also roast up fantastically. Normally you'd have Jersey Bennies. Yeah, no, and uh, we're pretty gutted, but um, yeah, a bit of uh, miscommunication and leaving our run a bit late. Uh, we weren't able to get any Jersey Benny seed this year. It was a bit short. Oh, well, it's always good to try some different varieties. Yeah, any new potato is pretty good, and, um, yeah, the Anushka is very good as an early new-season boiling potato. Yep. 
and all these spuds are spray free? Yeah, they are this year. Uh, more by uh, good luck than good management. <laughs> um, windows of opportunity for me to get out and spray them at the critical times didn't quite happen. So yeah, all our potatoes are all spray free this year. Now I can see heaps of other veggies in the distance. What have you got? Um, so we've got uh, broccoli, cabbages, strawberries, asparagus is now finished for the season. Um, we've also got tomatoes, chilies, and capsicums in the greenhouse. Last time I was here, you had a few workers on board, but um, now it's just you and Melissa. Yeah, that's right. So it's just the two of us now. We've cut back some of the crops that we grow and just focused on the more productive and profitable crops. Mm. And you were doing veggie boxes. Are you still doing that? No, no. Unfortunately, we finished doing the boxes up at uh, Christmas last year. Um, just things, numbers uh, were a bit up and down, which made planning for crop production just too difficult and too much wasted. So, yeah, we've consolidated the business a lot there. Where is your main market? Who do you sell your produce to? So we're now just doing uh, three farmers markets, so the Ahoka farmers market on Friday and Mount Pleasant farmers market and Amberley farmers market on Saturdays. And uh, we also sell quite a bit of produce at the gate via an honesty box system. Mm. Has this sort of work taken a toll on your body? It definitely has. Um, Picking asparagus this season uh, was pretty rough on my hips and uh, I'll probably be uh, next year sometime in line for one new hip at least. (laughs) We've just come to your uh, strawberry area which is closer to your packing house. Do you do pick your own strawberries too? We do do occasionally um, later in the in the year when uh, our production increases and we've got more strawberries than what we need for the farmers markets. Uh, we open it up for a pick your own. It's usually at very short notice and just done on our Facebook page. We create an event. We usually run it for an hour or two or until they're all picked out, so it's not something you want to be late for because you will miss out, but yeah, you just need to keep an eye on our growing Facebook page for when that is, but that won't be until next year. Now, the strawberries aren't looking like they've been affected too much by the uh, heavy rain storm we had yesterday. No, we were quite lucky. When the, the rain usually does its most damage when it stays wet for sort of 12 hours or longer. So fortunately the rain was short-lived, so we've got away relatively unscathed on that front. Yeah, the strawberries are looking great, actually. Lots of red strawberries um, waiting to be picked. Yeah, there are, but um, some of them are only half red, so <laughs> at a quick glance it looks like there's a lot more there, but uh, if you look on the other side... A lot of them are just not quite ready, so we need a bit more heat this week. And sun, of course. Yeah, so these strawberries will be going to your next farmer's market, I guess. Yeah, so uh, yeah, the strawberries that we're picking today will be um, off to a hoker on Friday. Mm. Mm. Excellent. And all in all, are you looking forward to getting to the end of this year? Has it been a tough year for you? Uh, yeah, no, it has, and we've had a yeah, number of challenges this year. So we're uh, looking forward to starting afresh a next year, and um, yeah, the summer brings on the new crops. How do you take a break over Christmas when the berries and, and vegetables need to be picked? 
Well, uh, fortunately for us, we're usually about Christmas time right in that trough of a wave with our uh, lease production for the year, probably usually is right about Christmas. Mm. Of course, we're never, and I always used to say that um, strawberries don't know it's Christmas, mm. but I'm now sort of wondering if they do and they just want a holiday like every, all the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's one time that we do get a break for a week or so. And so, yeah, we'll head up to Kaikoura once we get the family Christmas behind us and then we'll come back and then full noise straight back into it. Sefton vegetable and strawberry grower Cam Booker. The Dig Your Own Spuds and Pick Your Own Peas day he mentioned is being held on Sunday, December the 24th. To find out more, check out the Grown Family Facebook page. You can find a link to it on the Country Life webpage. Next, we're meeting a former dairy farmer who has some sage words for those thinking of hanging up their milking cups for good. He's gone from the milking shed to designing and building chicken trailers, running regenerative farming workshops and a small herd of beef cattle. He had time for a chat with producer Sally Round. We are in uh, outskirts of Palmerston North, uh, halfway between Fielding and Palmerston North. Uh, Our little property here, 20 acres, and moved here about two and a half years ago. And you were on a dairy farm? Yeah, I'd been dairy farming for 20 years. We were up at Table Flat Road, Appity. Lovely environment, challenging environment, and uh, yeah, came with its issues. And uh, uh, weather-related challenges up there were were fairly intense. Yeah, that uh, we had, you know, you could have snow and lots of bleak, bleak grey days. But uh, on the all, on on the whole, it was a yeah lovely environment to raise a young family and to have a wonderful community environment up there but yeah just felt like I needed a change and wanted a change for the family and so um, we started looking around for something else and didn't quite find what I was looking for so we ended up here and at the moment it's easier to stay here than find something else. <laughs> and you can probably hear in the background the chickens, uh, that is why you're here. Yes, that's one reason why we're here, yes, yeah. Tell us about this uh, machine that we can so, see in the paddock. Yeah, for sure. So uh, about five years ago, a friend of mine, Dennis, and I decided that, uh, well, part of our regenerative agricultural philosophy is to incorporate uh, other forms of livestock into our farming operations. And so Dennis and I saw an opportunity to bring in the... Uh, the mobile chicken trailers which um, stem from the lunatic farmer which is Joel Sellerton, an American uh, farmer who added uh, many forms of diversity to his farming operation and so he came up with the uh, the mobile chicken caravan or chicken trailer or chicken coop so um, and so this is yeah we decided it was a great idea and thought well let's bring them into New Zealand so and describe uh, the concept of this mobile so chicken coop for sure so the concept of these is uh, in our case we've got laying hens so they are pastured laying hens um, and the idea is to move them round onto a fresh pasture on a on a regular basis, and so they're outside, they're, they're scavenging for bugs and picking up the worms and dethatching the soil and and fertilising the soil too. So um, that that's the whole concept. It's about getting as close to nature with these birds as we can. So they hop up inside there, they lay their eggs inside the rollaway nesting boxes. They do that in the morning and then they hop out and away they go and they're outside for the rest of the day just having a great time enjoying the enjoying the weather and enjoying what they can pick out of the soil. And uh, yeah, we move them around on a daily basis. So not just good for the chickens, but good for the soil. Yeah, great for the soil too. So yeah. Has there been any science done around that? 
There has been. I probably can't think of anything off the top of my head, but yeah, they're putting you know, the potassium nitrogen back in the soil. Um, and the first year, I could definitely see where the chicken trailer was parked at night. You know, there'd be a, a nice green patch about three weeks later. I guess as I'm building the soil facility of this property, that we're no longer seeing those uh, defined sort of square patches. You know, from dropping their their poop at night. So yeah, it's um, certainly. Um, creating a great great soil environment and adding their biology back to the soil and the hens are doing a great job part of that process. Can we get a bit closer? Yeah, sure thing. I'll go around and turn that fence off so we can hop over there. Over at the chicken campsite in the paddock, Lance explains how he'd struck some challenges importing the trailers. So he's now building kiwi versions better suited to local conditions. Are taking the design of several round around the world really, by the time you do a bit of googling and you see what different people are doing, um, taking different concepts and adding my own kiwi flair to it and making a New Zealand version of what we've got. So, uh, so what are some of the changes you'll be making? Um, they won't be quite such a quite a square shell, which seems to attract the wind. And these big doors are designed for the Australian sort of harsher, probably hotter conditions. We'll probably only have half a door, and that way it's less uh, less issue for wind. And they'll look more like an American kind of a wagon, I think, with a rolled roof and uh, yeah, a few different features around that. So it is like a little caravan with. Sorry, chicken. <laughs> uh, it's got sort of pop-up sides. Yes, yeah, so um, these are about as automated as we can make these things. They've got a solar panel on the roof and a battery that stores the energy and these doors can open and close uh, automatically or to a timer and the nest boxes are a roll-away nest box and they've got a electric door so they open and close so the birds aren't sleeping inside the nest boxes at night so the nest boxes open about 4am in the morning close about 4pm in the afternoon where are the nest boxes uh, so here's the nest boxes here oh. and they like a bit of privacy so the old chicken hops up in there and walks it's through in there a bit of a flap there in front yeah yeah and they just hop in there and perch in there and lay their egg on that mat there, and then the eggs roll away to the uh, onto the egg belt in the centre here. And there so, are some eggs. Yeah. So the, the beauty of the roll away nest boxes is the eggs stay clean. You know, there's once this van can take 130 chickens. They can pop outside into a movable netted enclosure to scratch around in the grass. So at the moment, yeah, they are inside a 50 metre netting, roll of netting, and I just set that up into a into a circle around it and pull it forward and move the netting every other day. Um, if I had the 430 in here, well, I'd be moving it forward every day to a new break. So Now, there is one hungry chicken pecking my, the yeah, back of yeah, my car. They, uh, they'll quite happily come along and peck your feet all day. So. <laughs> what else do you give them to eat? Uh, they, get, they, get, they get a grain, so they get a poultry pallet uh, in the feeder here. I've only, because I've only got 30 hens, I'm running a grandpa feeder. And, um, but I do, I do have other bigger feeders for, for bigger flocks of hens. And they're actually eating the grass as well? Yeah, they, they more peck at it and, and you know, play with it than probably eat it. But yeah, there's certainly a little bit of eating going on. But, uh, but yeah, they're after the bugs in the yeah, soil. Yeah, really after the bugs in the soil. The ban on battery-caged hens, which came into effect at the end of 2022, was good for business. Inquiries went through the roof from January this year through to about April. That was due to the cage restrictions coming into play and people were looking at options and I guess the egg shortage you know, uh, created, uh, certainly created an opportunity. Certainly took a lot of inquiries, a lot of people sort of thought about it and you know, gave it some thought and some took it on. 
and uh, many have sort of, you know, parked it or... And, yeah, people are still coming back to me six months later saying, hey, yeah, I'm ready to do something now, now that I've sort of got my numbers and got my head around the concept or I've got labour sorted or whatever it might be. Are many of them farmers who want to uh, improve their own soils or is it really people who want to get into the egg business? There's, there's some of that, the farmers wanting to improve their own soil health, but majority of them are people looking at it as, a, as an egg business, you know, to offer the consumer a, a pasture-raised egg. Um, you know, as we're all aware, you know, people are wanting to see and know where their food's growing these days and the egg's no different than, than anything else. So, um, you know, and there are people that are looking at it as an investment opportunity. Hey, I can buy a chicken trailer and I can, you know, have 500 hens and I can go and see my neighbour down the road and say, hey, you know, can we do a joint venture together? You know, can I bring my chickens and my trailer onto your farm and work with you and come up with some kind of arrangement? So there's, there's certainly some of that happening too. Um, a local one that I'm building at the moment, it's going into a community garden and they're using it to, um, I guess, add eggs to their, their, their community produce that they're, um, that they're marketing and selling to their community members. So. How much does one of these cost? This is about $16,000. Um, so they're not cheap. They're not cheap, but I guess the bigger you go, the uh, cheaper they become per bird and the payback's a lot quicker. You know, I've got a customer that bought a 450 bird model last year and he reckons he'd pay that capital investment back in 40 weeks. So depends on your market and your location and uh, how keen you are to be out there selling and who you're selling to. So The trailers all stem from Lance's interest in regenerative agriculture, especially practices around improving the soil. Yeah, probably about 12, 14 years ago, I got uh, interested in the regenerative agriculture and um, started sort of looking at that and thinking, you know, this could be part of my business operation and wanted to do something different. And I guess for me, because I never had uh, a father that was farming with me, I'd never had that sort of, um, you know, this is how we do it kind of uh, scenario. So I was sort of free to sort of run my own dairy farm the way I chose to and yeah looking at alternatives and reducing our fertiliser inputs was the beginning of my my road to regenerative agriculture and you know the last five years I you know I wanted to be involved and you know make it make people more aware of you know what else is out there and other ways of farming and other ways of reducing their fertiliser inputs so yeah got involved with uh, promoting it in, in our region and then um, you know about three years ago we started the Manitou Regenerative Ag Group so I facilitate that and uh, we try and get together, you know, it was monthly, it's sort of, we're scaling that back a little bit as we all get busier, but uh, yeah, try and facilitate opportunities for farmers to get together and share stories and, you know, share how they're doing things and learn from one another really and try to create a real community around learning together. There is a sense though that New Zealand is already doing regen agriculture and has been doing so for a while now. It's a bit of a buzzword. Yeah, for sure, it is, and um, you know, I totally agree with that statement and for what people to think of it. Um, you know, me, regenerative agriculture, it's about looking after soil, it's about you know, creating soil biology and creating the right soil environment for, for plants to thrive and livestock. You know, if you, if you look at the, um, the concept, you know, healthy soil equals healthy livestock equals healthy plants equals healthy humans, I think we sort of haven't got that full concept uh, in our minds yet, so you know, at the end of the day it's all about um, you know, looking after soil and ultimately looking after us and you know, how we do that is, uh, yeah, there's many, many ways in the regenerative model to, to do that and uh, yeah, I'm certainly excited to be part of that. With the workshops you're running, what are you seeing among um, farmer knowledge and farmer engagement with this style of farming? 
Yes, there, there's certainly a lot of interest out there, and um, it's it's easier to do a lot of these practices or try a lot of these things more on the flatlands. And um, the the guys that are probably struggling with it more are the the hill country guys. Uh, you know, they can't pull a tractor up and over their hills, so you know we've got to sort of work with them uh, differently. One size doesn't fit all. Every farm's different. You know, mob stocking and and resting paddocks and you know, longer grazing rounds, you know, they are things that are, yeah, easier on probably a beef operation, but certainly a bit harder in a dairy and probably hill country sheep guys. So you've got to be sort of flexible and adaptable to, to offer different solutions and work with them on, you know, what can work for them. And harder on the pocket, perhaps? Uh, some of it could be, yeah. It depends on how, how hard and fast you want to go at changing changing things. I mean, uh, yeah, I was dairy farming up there where we were and, you know, working with the nitrogen caps, it never fazed me, you know, if it was a nitrogen cap up there at 190 kilos or whatever it is that's coming into play now in play, that, that wouldn't have fazed me at all. I was sort of 30 kilos to hectare of end per season, so, and, uh, you know, we were achieving, you know, good grass growth and, and good results from that. Some of those restrictions wouldn't have fazed me at all if I was still dairy farming today. So the farmers that are coming to you, are they a new generation of farmer or are they guys that have been doing it for a while? It's definitely a mix of both. You know, the other week I met uh, met two brothers, and you know, they'd be in their sixties, and they're you know, really keen to be looking at options and opportunities, and and ways to reduce their inputs, and ways to, I guess, enhance their soils, and you know, leave leave it in a better place for the next generation. And then there's the younger ones too. So um, it's certainly a mix right across the board that who's who's coming out of the woodwork to to learn, and you know, the, there's such curiosity out there on on uh, different different techniques and yeah really, it's really exciting to be sort of part of it. What do you want to see in policy perhaps going forward that would help farmers get into this area? Um, I guess oh that's a good question I hadn't really given that one much thought um, I guess I just want to see farmers be able to you know explore and experiment and and do things you know their way rather than sort of being forced down uh, from policy from above um, there's certainly you know uh, many of us are, are, are driving change from from the ground or from the grassroots up, and and that's sort of coming through. And it'd just be nice if uh, you know the powers to be would sort of you know take more notice of what what the farmers are actually doing, and sort of you know come and asking us, well, what's what's working for you guys, and you know how are you doing that, and and uh, yeah, certainly creating a, a reconnect, I suppose, after there's certainly been a disconnect for many years. With the chickens settling in the shade of the caravan, I ask Lance how he's found it moving on from the daily chores of dairy farming. It's certainly been, a, a, I guess, a mental challenge for me over the years to uh, work out who I am now um, and what I have become. You know, I was dairy farming for 20 years and, you know, we milked 380 cows and, you know, we had this and we had that. To not following through with what I thought I wanted as my next farming operation and my next farming venture. You know, the idea was to find a 100 hectare dry stop block somewhere or something like that and, and run that in conjunction with the chickens and, and that sort of thing. And that never came up. Well, that block we didn't, didn't get and so we had to settle for something smaller. And that really created a frustration or a disappointment for me that I hadn't achieved what I wanted to achieve or what I thought I wanted to achieve. And I really struggled with that for probably the last year or year and a half after moving off the farm. You know, I'd lost my identity of who I was. I was no longer, you know, Lance the dairy farmer. I was somebody else. 
but most of that, well, probably all of it, was the the you know the six inches between my ears that was sort of uh, talking to me in my head, and it's taken me a long time to sort of um, you know realise that I'm still Lance and I'm still doing what I do, I'm still farming, I'm just doing it differently, but. You know, getting involved, you know, my wife Catherine, she's a mental health coach and facilitator, so she certainly, uh, you know, has some tricks up her sleeve to, to pass on to me. My daughter's a Pilates instructor, reformer teacher, and uh, runs, you know, runs workshops at personal at her studios. And now, you know, we're, there's two classes running running a week for, for blokes, it's called Bro Lattes, you know, so to be part of, you know, guys having a laugh with each other and and uh, you know, doing a bit of exercise at the same time. That's certainly been great. It's it's an off um, interest, and it gets gets us out there. Um, so that's certainly been um, yeah, been great for the for the mind and the body. Are you seeing quite a bit of challenges out there among the farmers that you meet? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of challenge out. You know, the, you know, the farming can be a lonely gig. You know, some guys are doing it. They might be doing it with their dad, but their dad might be a grumpy old fart, and he may not be so. Uh, you know, so okay, you're open to change and that sort of thing. So it's struggling for the next generation coming through. And you know, how do those guys sort of work with their their families on farm? Um, and then there's the younger ones that you know are really struggling with. Oh, this ain't an easy gig anymore. Or I mean, it's never been easy, but particularly hard at the moment. Um, you know, so there's certainly a need to be supporting guys out there. I know, I know there's the, the surfing for farmers and there's the, the mountain biking for farmers thing. So that's that's really awesome. Certainly need to be connecting with people in our communities and, and meeting different people. And that's, that's certainly what I enjoy. Lance Gillespie outside his chicken trailer on the outskirts of Palmerston North. There's video and photos of the movable chicken home on our webpage. What I find exciting about agriculture is it's a good career choice, you're always learning, you can always progress, there's always the next step. There's plenty of support out there, so she tried as a job. Country Life, 101 FM. Now, producer Leah Tebbit is taking us to the heart of the North Island, where the Whanganui and Rataruki rivers converge. Hey, well, welcome to Top of the World on a, on a pretty uh, murky spring day. But uh, every day is different. And you'll see a character around the place anyway. Um, but uh, you've got 360-degree views of the rainforest, and on a nice day, you'd be looking straight at uh, Mount Tongariro, Narahoe, and Ruapehu over there, and out the back through the saddle, back saddle, you'd see Mount Taranaki. You're kidding. Yeah, you would be seeing the, you'd be seeing the top of the world. So but, I have uh, to come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Top of the, you'd be seeing the top of uh, the North Island, or yeah. yeah. Top of the world, it might be a bit ironic down here at the bottom of the world, but that's how we feel anyway. So they just make a sort of neary whistle like that. That's a pretty poor imitation, but. We're on the hunt for a feel, a blue duck. You'll be familiar with it as it's on the back of a $10 note. It's also the namesake of Dan Steele's livelihood, Blue Duck Station. The working sheep and beef farm is home to 6,000 sheep and 700 cattle, plus a small deer farm. But it's not the only thing happening, as Dan's goal is to preserve the history and conserve the wildlife and its habitat, and it's achieved with the help of various tourism activities. But to get a good grasp, we head to a newly constructed wetland where Dan's story takes shape. Pretty cool here. See, look at the bird life, you know, and listen to the bird life. There's a kahu and a pair of kahu and all the different types of ducks. There's a dab chick right in the middle. 
So that's what I was hoping to show you today. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, there's yeah, a little depth check, and um, you put these wetlands in, and we just have done this one over the last few years. Um, look, there's even a blackback seagull, and there's so much life here. But having the dab check, you know, uh, not often you see those out here, and there's a breeding pair of dab check, and hopefully they're going to live and stay and breed here. So those are grey ducks taking off. Um, there's some grey teal taking off on the far side. And the kahu, spurring plovers, paradise ducks. It's all go here. So there's. Um, you, you can know, tell by the noise, eh? Yeah. <laughs> but you know, you put a wetland in like this, which was just a swampy part of the paddock anyway. And so I've dammed it up and designed it all out here so it goes right back up into the flats there. Planted natives around it. And uh, shallow water and deep water. It's got uh, two sort of water sources coming into it. Where does it come from, the both, water? Both water sources here are coming from under the road. It all sort of comes out of these big steep hills out behind us. So there's some, some of the higher points on the station up there. The yeah, highest point huge. on the station is 600 metres above sea level. And uh, yeah, pretty gnarly bluffs. But when it rains hard, the water just comes pouring out of those big steep bluffs and faces and runs down these streams and can flood pretty badly. Unbeknown, 100 years ago, everyone just tried to get the water from the hills to the main river as quick as they could, and they drained all the wetlands and the swamps, and they just opened channels so the water can run straight through. It's like a fire hose. And it causes terrible erosion. And so what I'm trying to do here is put the wetlands all back in, slow the water down so it just comes down and it starts slowing down and, and losing that sedimentation and, and cleaning up so we can clean up the main river, which then can clean up the Whanganui River, which then can help clean up the ocean. And so it's from the mountains to the sea, you know, just getting involved with the catchment groups around. And so we've started the Retoruki catchment group here, which is a bit over 50,000 hectares catchment on this river, which is a part of the Whanganui Region Catchment Collective, which is 800,000 hectares of water quality and biodiversity and more sustainable farming in communities. And we're trying to be... Uh, showcasing and helping people see that looking after Mother Nature and things is, is uh, good for everyone long term, you know, and good for the value of our products. So here's the little, oh, here's a pair of dab chicks. So you come around here, look at these little fellas. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, you, yeah, they're going to stay on the other side. Oh, they're coming towards us a little. You know, when you see them in the distance, you, you might just think they're a, a duck or a teal, but um, so the pair of dab chicks is, is pretty cool. And a pair of pretty noisy paradise stuff. <laughs> yeah. One of our goals with conservation is to to actually bring back species that have disappeared from here. Something we, we would really like to see happen and, and that would be a success milestone. And do you do it all yourself, this kind of work? Or, or you know, with the crew of people that Yeah, that's that right. Are here yeah. You, I mean we'll take any help we can get and we and we work with government departments where we can. Yeah. But think that when you're dealing with critical things like uh, water quality and biodiversity, I think uh, businesses have to take a lot of, of this on themselves. And farmers own right, most of New Zealand, right? So farmers looking after New Zealand, it's a huge opportunity. And uh, it's in fact very necessary. So we work with anyone we can, but mainly driving it ourselves in partnership with our volunteers that uh, our eco warriors that come and help out yeah that's wicked so and cool it, it feels like we're basically in the middle 
of the North Island. You know, because driving down here, we've got Tomatanui sort of behind to the top of us. Yep, to the, to the, to the north is the Forgotten World Highway coming through there, uh, Whangamomana over the other side of the Whanganui National Park. If you like, Whanganui National Park all to the south of us, Tongariro National Park out there to the east of us, yeah. and a whole lot of hill country and going north to Tomaranui into the King Country, Hill Country, yeah. How did that conservation journey start for you? Because you said you started planting in 2005. Or, or trapping, mostly now. trapping predators yeah. was the first thing, and, and then, yeah, trapping predators and trying to protect habitat, for certainly for the blue duck and... The thought with, with the blue duck is if you look after the blue duck, you look after everything. You look after water quality and and uh, if you're trapping predators, you're looking after everything. And These are things you need to do to look after the, the blue duck, but the blue duck's at the bottom of the environment and in the, in the water system. If you look after them, you look after everything above as well. Yeah, I, I love the diversity of the world, and so anything that takes away the diversity of the world is um, has got to be really, really questioned. And a lot of our systems are are killing the diversity of the world. So we've got to change those and yeah. we've got to start uh, thinking about things differently. Yeah, and, and so the conservation journey for me is pretty natural and I, I just, I'm on a journey, you know. I'm just learning all about these things and I don't know very much about dab chicks at all, but I'm gonna learn because now they've moved <laughs> onto my wetland, you know. I'm gonna learn what they need. I'm gonna come and um, do some more trapping around these wetlands and. Uh, put a bit of uh, poison where it's required to take the rat numbers out and things like that and give everything here a, a full chance of surviving. Mm. But we might need a series of wetlands so we can have a population here and that's certainly what I'm looking at. Because I've got the territory for it, you know. I've got all the water coming out of the hills and all the streams running into my river systems and you know, I've got river systems here. I mean, I'm pretty fortunate to have that. Uh, that can sustain blue duck and and, um, and a myriad of other things. But, you know, we hop back into the side-by-side -side on the hunt again for a blue duck. Dan drives through the hub of the farm, past various houses of family that now call the station home. We race past a cafe, various accommodation for hikers, hunters and others here to enjoy the fine dining experience, horse treks and bush safaris. I passed a sign saying Wanganui National Park. Yes, yep. you're just going through my land and now there's a piece of Wanganui National Park and then you're back into my land again and then after a few kilometres further out you'll get to the Wanganui National Park proper. <laughs> so this is a paper road through here and so it's quite a historic journey out through the property. And there's Wanganui River, right? That's the Wanganui River. So that's the old depot building, and uh, that was the last original building from 1917. Hand-split uh, cladding and timbers with an, made with an axe. The original corrugated iron from 1917. So it's a bit of, bit of history right there. Thanks to some rain, we decide to take cover where I get to learn about the history that makes this space and venture special. That's real rain there now. So it doesn't look very um, watertight. No, no, like, the... so, like I say, hand split timbers from 1917, hand pulled nails. You know, look at the even names going back to 1940 carved in the door. Yeah. But you come in and uh, it's almost completely dry. So the 1917 roof still, still works fine. The history of this place started, 
around the settlers coming in here and trying to turn this country into farming, right? Or, or was it post-war? Oh, where you're standing right now it did, but the Whanganui River was very much uh, Māori history first because they were using it for uh, access way up into the central North Island and hunter-gathering, food-growing. And then in here, which was pretty well uninhabited previously, this was developed by the, the, the first settlers and post-World War One. So this was a World War One development block, yeah. And they walked out. They couldn't do it. Pretty much. Most of them came in and uh, the access wasn't reliable enough. It was too remote for a lot of people. The land was just too tough to break in and run anything profitably. And then in, by 1942, the government said, that's enough. We've gone through the big depression and we've... Uh, done a few things but we're not going to keep those roads open anymore, it was a mistake and please get out. So the last settlers walked out of here with what they could carry on their backs and now it just goes down as a piece of New Zealand history and the the bridge to nowhere is a place that a lot of people put on their bucket list and want to visit just to experience that, uh, that piece of our past year. I, often come in here, even on a little bit of a rainy day like today, and you sit inside this depot building that was providing shelter for them 100 years ago, and you can start to put yourself a little bit in their shoes and think, right, well, you had to walk in here and you're trying to cut a farm out of the bush with an axe and a saw and create a living and hopefully get a family in here at some stage. And what was it like? Thinking about that, in terms of trying to make it work, thinking about how those dudes tried to make it work, is that where the tourism came in for you? Because I'm guessing when you first were walking around here, before it was even Blue Duck Station, mm. it was just farmland, and, and that was what you Pretty intended much. it to be. Pretty much. There'd been the odd little dabble into tourism, and, and my neighbour was renting canoes and, and one or two things, but tourism was a real natural thought of diversifying the land and and valuing its beauty and and uh, yeah, unique attributes. Uh, the catalyst for that for me was travelling the world and I'd seen this after my parents bought here 30 years ago this year and came home with a burning ambition and that's what I'm doing. The tourism side of the the station enables the station to be successful like in terms of with the wool and things like that, not selling for a good price. Does it all tie into each other That's right. to make it all work? Yeah, very much. So, you know, we've got these products, wool, honey, timber, meat coming off the station, but out here in this sort of environment and, and uh, how it's pretty hard farmland, we need to be able to add value to those, but we can use the tourism and tell our stories and then sell some of our products back to our guests and create our own brand and our market and tie that back into putting some of that money back into Mother Nature, which recreates the cycle again, you know? And so we're making our own place more and more beautiful every year as we go, and then inherently that's going to add more value to, to what we're doing. So hopefully it's a real virtuous cycle. With the rain eased, we get back to finding a blue duck. Yeah. So this is great blue duck habitat, uh, kiwi habitat, native bats everywhere out here. True. Lots of lots of things, eh? So there'll be things out here we don't even know about yet. 
this is a big old Remu that just decided to fall over the track here. And True. Yeah, yeah, just, you know, you know just you know, big old Remu. Yeah. And get up, Bruce. Get up. Get up, Bruce. Sit down there, Jinx. A little bit slippery down here, not too bad. I'll just pop up and see if they're there. You yeah. just hang out here under a tree or a punter. And yeah, sure I'll just enough. have a quick look with that here. If they are, we'll have a closer look, eh? Yeah. Hey, there's a male roosting right here, Leah. And uh, so we're just going to sneak around this punger and you're going to see him sitting on a semi-submerged rock in the middle of the river. He won't be too worried about us, but we'll just let him know quietly that we're here so he doesn't get a fright. And he's just roosting on his own, I think. Now you can see a blue duck by the white beak. If you see a duck in the distance, if it's got a white beak, it's a blue duck. So come around there, right in the middle of the river. Oh, yeah. You got him? Yeah, I got him. Yeah, yeah. He is just sitting there. Yeah, yeah. So um, the good thing here is if we can't see her, it means she's um, probably on the nest. Right. And like I say, he's just uh, standing guard. So he's just putting his beak away. He's going to go back to sleep now that he knows we're here. Yeah. So he is really just standing guard. Yep. He's just like waiting. A, um, he's waiting for her. And a, and um, and like just a soldier in the night. But that's a uh, look. It's a beautiful habitat out here to see one in. Yeah. And uh, there he is. He's just standing. It's so. If you didn't know what you were looking for, that's right. He merges well, so well that's as right. well. And that's that's exactly what they are. They're perfectly camouflaged in their habitat. You know, a lot of these rocks are, are blue papar and and um, and sandstone and grey wacky and, and yeah. you know, the blue duck is really a, is a grey, you know, grey blue colour. Uh, he's got a beautiful crimson fleck to his chest, and you can just see the light reflecting off that at the moment. Is that to identify that he's a male? No, no both ducks are almost identical colours, the male and female. But um, that's the male because he's standing guard and she'll be on the nest. And uh, they make completely different noises. So the male whistles, True. and that's a... Like that. Eerie whistle. And the female makes a hard case sort of uh, purring uh, noise. She's um, sort of... Yeah, pretty special, eh? Yeah, it is special. Um, yeah, it is. Leah was talking to Dan Steele there. And if you're interested in learning more of the history of the property, you can read about it in a new, visually stunning book entitled Blue Duck Station. And it's the last show of the year next week, Duncan. Yes, but the team is bringing you a best of summer series over the break, so you can still have your weekly dose of country life. And next week we're visiting a collector who has all the time in the world. Now that I've, uh, I'm so well known, people ring up and say, I've got a clock here, would you like it? Uh, and how and far I will say, you go to get them? Ten but two. We're also out delivering milk the old school way. And we'll take a last look for the year at conditions on the farm. That's next week on Country Life. Until then, Matiwa. Bye now. Bye.